Dental Associates of Northern Virginia redefine what it means to visit the dentist. Get top-quality, personalized support from committed experts who prioritize the well-being and satisfaction of you and your family. Care is centered on a highly personalized treatment plan backed by the trust and support of long-lasting relationships. Schedule your next appointment by visiting dental1-va.com slash offer slash SiriusXM. Hi, Max. I wanted to share something with you. I wanted to tell you how grateful I am on how you've embraced your sobriety since day one. I'm grateful for how you changed your life. I'm grateful for the love you have for me. I'm grateful for you. Love, Mom. If your loved one is still struggling with addiction, you might not feel like you'll ever get to grateful. But we can show you how. At Karen, we've helped families overcome addiction for 70 years. So if your loved one is ready for something different, visit caron.org slash lost. Hey, everybody, Wizard and the Bruiser and Page 7 are going back on the road this summer. That's right, release the Butthole Cut Tour returns. Where are we going, Jake? Oh, you can find us in Salt Lake City, Denver, Las Vegas, Portland, Tacoma, Oklahoma City, Kansas City, and St. Louis, Missouri. LastPodcastNetwork.com for tickets. Go to LastPodcastNetwork.com for Page 7 and Wizard and the Bruiser present release the Butthole Cut Tour. Oh, you poor unfortunate souls. It's your wizard, Holden McNeely. And it is I, Mon, your very appropriate oh accented crab, Jake. Sebastian. <laughs> <laughs> the new play, the foot, the cart play, the harp, the bass play, the right. bass, the sounding, the sharp, the bass play, the brass, the chub play, the dub, the fluke is the duke of soul. Ah! Oh, what? everyone loves it. <laughs> wow, Jake. Uh, incredible. Uh, and you're a bruiser and you're Jake Young no, and we I'm have a, a guest I'm a today. I'm Caribbean crab, man. Oh, uh, right. We got to just you move ain't got shoulder no past it so hard. <laughs> Just shoulder past it so hard. And we, all right. Good Lord here. We've got uh, Ed Larson, uh, our resident Disney expert here to talk about the little mermaid. And I love the Ariel's. Ariel's is a great, is a great lady who lives in the seas <laughs> and she has a dingle hoppers. I could do a buddy hack. Okay. I'm a horny priest. I'm a horny priest. Someone keeps that priest away from my friend. Ariel. Right. We're going to debunk listen, this priest boner, boner by definitely- the way. You know, just a, an artifact of the JP of the uh, VHS era, but that castle boner on the VHS cover is real. That was put I've there. seen it with my own eyes. There is zero chance it's an accident. I don't care what Snopes.com says. That is a phallus. Yeah, yeah that's no. a penis on the cover for sure. I mean, but you know, they 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 didn't have balls. <laughs> Man, all right. What does that change? Anyways. Well, you know, if it had balls, then it would have definitely been a Yoshalongas. Like my my grandfather always said, a penis with no balls is fine for a castle. There's no penis at all. Yeah, yeah. 
and uh, we're here, of course, like I said, to talk about Little Mermaid. Let's get into the gush. There's so much to talk about here because it's not just the story of Little Mermaid. The reason why I was so excited to do this, um, and I do love this movie. I think it's just such a wonderful, tight, thrilling, great ex- uh, experience with like every song's a banger like kind mm-hmm. of situation. But on top of that, it's really the story of the Disney Renaissance and. I love the story of the Disney Renaissance because it's so it the whole world everything would be different mm. if this hadn't this movie hadn't happened like yeah. your whole life would be different. Oh, no, uh, for sure, for sure. <laughs> I mean, I'd still like Disney, but everyone would think I'm I'm an idiot. <laughs> right? Yeah, you'd be like, what? Why? Because of fucking that Robin Hood movie that came out forever. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> but yeah, it's I don't know. I I love a big thrilling success story and and this really is that because it's not just like the little mermaid or the little mermaid and then beauty and the beast i mean we're talking about such a ridiculous run of little mermaid beauty and the beast aladdin lion king specifically yeah that if you were a kid at that time like i was it was it was everything it was at mcdonald's it was at every it took over completely it completely took over everything i remember i did um because I did like children's theater. I remember doing a full, uh, like learning a whole dance routine for Be My Guest. Fun. Uh, you know, stuff like that. Like all of those songs were just um, as everywhere as the songs from Frozen are for the the younger generation now. You know, it's it's every like, time, kind of absurd. Every time Disney gets, they fit, they're like, man, people really like fun musicals starring skinny women. The skinny young women, and then they make a (laughs) trillion dollars. They veer off a little. They're like, "Oh, never mind. We're gods. We can do anything." And then you enter like Treasure Planet, fucking (laughs) the Dark Ages, and they lose their way. And then they got to come back around and remember. Oh no, 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 no! If the if the skinny lady is singing a song, we're making money. Yeah. Exactly. And, and it's it's just the fact that it was it wasn't just like like there's only one frozen what? in this modern era of Disney. Because even the sequel, many would say, as obsessed as kids are with the no, sequel. No, Moana is he, was Moana. Huge. Yeah, you got Moana. Kanto's the biggest thing ever. But still Zootopia yeah, gigantic. Huge. But I still feel like the run of those four movies is, Oh, it won't be beat. It will never be beat. And the fact that like it, before these four movies Everyone looked at cartoons as total baby shit. It was just for kids. It was like lame for adults. And these movies changed that whole thing around. And all of a sudden, like, like adults and children alike are thrilled to go to the theater to see the newest big animated Disney feature in a way that had not happened yet. And if again, if that hadn't happened, where's Pixar? Where's this whole relationship we now have with, like, animated films that were still... I feel like negotiating into more respect into a higher platform mm-hmm. a little bit. Yeah. I mean, there's still art dialogues around, you know, the nomination categories for like Oscars and the way that animated films are treated in that way. Or what you know? even yeah. is an animated movie anymore when like right. every frame of a modern blockbuster, like Avatar Way of Water is like it's an animated 90% film. animated. Right. Like, 98 probably. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's just that one weird spider kid just like hanging out with his gross flesh and body. Robots are horny for whales. But look, people. <laughs> <laughs> what I also let's get into the gush because like watching Little Mermaid in the movie theater, I think I have I think maybe one of my first movie theater experiences was when they re-released Fantasia. 
Oh, really? I think, or or maybe it was when it first, well, when it, no, because Fantasia came out like way before, Man, right? Man, I saw all that Disney shit in the theater. I definitely saw that in the theater, but Little Mermaid was one of my first experiences. And I remember like, because the other thing, I, it was really interesting to see Jeffrey Katzenberg, major player in this. We'll, we'll talk about it. Psychopath. But, you know, he, yes, <laughs> maniac. He he definitely was like, all right, y'all, well, it's not going to be too crazy of a box office because this is a girl movie for girls. And yeah. I remember as a boy child audience member feeling kind of that a little bit going in. Oh, I didn't want to go. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And then it won me over like totally. as soon as Under the Sea hit, totally. which is like- 12 minutes in. But even part of your world, I was like, what what is this emotion I'm feeling? Like <laughs> yeah. part of your world, I like didn't want to love it as much as I did as a kid. Because even back then we had shitty gender norm stuff going on. And I felt like I wasn't allowed to mm-hmm. love something like that as yeah. much as I did at the time. Uh and now I'm like, I I just think that's one of the, like the best Disney numbers. Like it's just such a beautiful song. Top five, in my it's, opinion. It's so good. Just the structure of it. It's just so good. And the animation around it, it just improves it more and more and more. Under the Sea won the Oscar though. Which yes. kinda but still bothers me yeah. because I think that a part of your world's way it's, better song. I mean, part of your world is like it's so funny because we talk about it over on page seven. MJ talks about how they like kind of have a, a like have a disdain for it because literally every single audition piece for mm. a young girl mm-hmm. of of a certain age if it's like for a musical or whatever, they're gonna sing part of your world. It just invaded just yeah. every aspect. Except uh, for that one weird girl that comes in with Le Poisson. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Chain smoking <laughs> cigarettes. <laughs> but um, you know, but the whole but the whole thing, it 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 was it was so so groundbreaking in a way that we like forget because it's the norm now. It's the norm for Disney to put out a, a huge musical thing that surrounds a princess that is both though applicable for boys and girls alike, and you know has great songs in it and stuff like that's what we've come to expect. But back then, it was like it's all right to see Disney in the theater again, boys, mm. and like it was like this whole you know I love watching the old footage of like Siskel and Ebert yeah. and mm. all those different old newscasts where they're literally. Or, uh, there was that one and so uh, Waking Sleeping Beauty is a really good documentary it's on Disney Phenomenal. Plus and it tells the story of the Disney Renaissance and it's like kind of brutal too yeah <laughs> pretty brutal that paired with even more brutal the documentary Howard which is just incredible uh, and we're we'll ta- obviously going to talk a lot about Howard Ashman today but um who was wrote you know was a lot a big part of how, why the, these these movies ended up being so wonderful with the music and everything and um you know, uh, fuck, I lost my train of thought. I was talking about Waking Sleeping Beauty. What was I saying? Little girl was, movies, but everybody likes them. Yeah, I was watching old footage of this like newscaster from Waking Sleeping Beauty. He's just like, I'm a grown adult man who shouldn't have any interest in this sort of thing, but every time a new Disney movie comes out now, I gotta run straight to the theater and see it. You know, And it yeah. was just like, that was such a, a new statement to make at the time and now disney adults is a thing you know what i mean very much so very much so and i think little mermaid was great but i think uh, a little credit to that really goes to roger rabbit oh huge credit that came out like a year and a half before little mermaid and it was just like the perfect kids and adults movie yes and we we've done a roger rabbit episode actually already unfortunately uh ed or i would have totally thought to have invited you back if we did it but i i will say i agree with you because that was also you know and again we'll come back to that but what that was also a big uh statement that disney kind of that was a big or i'm sorry a big proof of concept that disney was able to make to say adults will go see cartoons too they just need to be done well 
I, have you seen Black Cauldron? I wanted not, to watch it. I couldn't find the time for it this week. I'm so not curious. I'm it's so very curious. scary. Yeah, I'm so curious about this movie because that was the one that... Broke that was, everyone. Yeah, yeah, that was the one that made everybody go like, maybe animation's not what Disney does anymore. Yeah, it was like 12 years long to yeah. make and it was like way over budget and then no one saw and it because it was so scary. Yeah. And do you remember the video game in the arcades? It was so annoying. <laughs> It was so long, and you, I never figured out how to play it. It would just eat your fucking quarters. Uh, I think you're thinking of Dragon's Lair, right? Isn't that, yeah, isn't... I mean, it's a sim- black culture, and it's all part of the uh, Don Bluth era yeah. at Disney yeah. where they did the Xerox instead of the ink on the paint. It, yeah. it, it created this huge rift, and Don, we did a Don Bluth episode years ago, but you know, it was his kind of like, revolution upset kind of uh, coup where he like stole half the animators away and yeah. started making Secret of Nim and then he teamed up with um Fievel. Yeah, with uh, Spielberg for American Tale and then uh, Land Before Time that created this like deep rivalry about like yeah. how Disney has lost its way and we're going to do it right. Which then Lamb resulted in Rockadoodle, which is one of the most fucked up, awful animated oh my God, movies yeah. ever made. <laughs> yeah. Was it Land Before Time came out the same day as Oliver and Co. Oliver and Oliver and Co. did beat it out. So did it? What, they weren't like totally uh, on their like total last legs per se. I mean, they were still doing a, like Great Mouse Detective and Oliver and Co. was kind of the transition period. Yeah. But like before that, Fox and the Hound, Black Cauldron, that was the point where they were like, maybe we are fucked here a little bit and yeah. we're not and going in a wrong direction. And it's all because of the death of Walt Disney in the 60s. Um, Ron Miller fucking doing nothing. Ron Miller just like doing nothing. Sitting there, like collecting a check, pretending to be boss. Well, and nothing lives. Like the theme parks aren't alive. The the you know the, everything else, all the merchandise and everything. None of it lives without new great animation films coming out to support everything else that Disney's doing. Like exactly. so, so the theme park starts to feel really stale if they don't have the next Lion King or Frozen or whatever for you to go and see and it feels so new and fresh. And the second it starts getting rough is when everything you're seeing there was like from 20 years ago or something like mm-hmm. that. You yeah. know? And, and and that's, it's just such an interesting system that they had built and then had to support with like banger fucking uh, uh, animation films. And then to see them really struggle with that is so interesting. For you, Ed... Um, so you saw Little Mermaid, you also saw Little Mermaid in the theater? Oh, I saw every movie in the theater, every Disney movie in the theater. I saw, you know, whatever came, my first movie I ever saw in the theater was Pinocchio, the release of Pinocchio, like three years old or something. Gotcha. One of my first memories. Yeah. And then, like, so if they came out, like, also I'm living in Florida, we're going to Disney, like, every week, every month, you know, like, we're going all the time. And so, if a Disney movie comes out, I'm going to see it. And I remember, like, protesting Little Mermaid (laughs) and Beauty and the Beast, Uh and just walking out, singing the song right dancing and shit <laughs> totally having the best time ever and then i, I couldn't believe, and then i saw aladdin like six times right and then aladdin yeah and, and i i also had have that memory of like of yeah not feeling like i was gonna really like it like this is a girl movie for girls and i kind of tra- had was not into musicals of that age was kind of interesting so yeah. i know you've kind of come back around in a big way to disney uh in this kind of time in your life it's and in for, the last 10 years yeah. and for me that's been that way with musicals because I used to be like opposed to musicals mm-hmm. and almost annoyed when a movie like Little Mermaid would get me and like yeah. suck me in and like get me into the music and everything and now I'm like re-embracing that stuff so that 
that's why I've been coming back around to these Disney movies because, you know, I watched Little Mermaid, I think at one one point during the, like, I'm sitting in the dark all day taking care of an infant time, mm. I just, like, rewatched it and a bunch of other, like, I watched, like, Newsies and, like, a bunch of stuff on Newsies rocked. I remember, Newsies like, Newsies. I was also feeling the same thing with musicals. But what kicked me back into liking musicals as a kid, because like my parents would take me all the time and, you know, like I, I'd never enjoyed it live, really. Phantom of the Opera, Miss Saigon, so boring, you know? And uh, and then so they, and then I saw, uh, what should we call it? Little Shop of Hearts. Yeah. Oh, man. Yeah. You know? And so, and that like flipped me out. I was like, whoa, what well, is this that's fucking ironic. monster? Yeah. I know. It's a direct know. line. Yeah. Exactly, and that's that makes sense why we like flipped out into all these other movies. I hadn't even realized that they were the Little Shop of Horrors guys. We were actually supposed to do a Little Shop of Horrors uh, in October during our spooky month, Ooh. and we still haven't done it yet. I still want to go back and do it now, almost now more so than ever because I know that you know it was Ashman and uh, what's his name, uh, and Mankin, Mankin behind that as well. And I am, I, I agree with you, man. I am just so obsessed with how unique and great that musical is. Uh, and the and the adaptation, uh, uh, filmed adaptation of it, and how amazing, you know, just everybody in it's great. I love the songs. There's something about the way that Howard Ashman writes music that like completely lights me up. Like, yeah, like um, Skid Row is a great example. Mm-hmm. Like, I think I see Skid Row, I hear Skid Row in a similar way to um, Part of Your World. Actually, like, there's just something about how the chorus opens up and like it builds to this like beautiful moment that's like emotional it's like beautiful well he talks about that he talks about it's he's like it's either the second third or fourth song yes. of the movie mm-hmm. and it's the, the i want the, trope yeah, yeah. When, the, when the when the lady when, when the female lead comes out and tells you what she wants and makes you fall in love with her yep and that's and that's you know it's skid row that's yep. part of your world it's, it's i also love uh it's just one of the hallmarks is like weird extra vocab words that like you never hear outside of like these classic disney songs like when uh, you know, a- Ariel's like reprimand their daughters, or like you big nabob and never had a friend like me, or yeah. Gaston being like I'm especially good at expectorating. Like it's just <laughs> such, there's just such a magic in the way he uses words in these songs. Um, I gotta Jake, say, well, yeah, yeah, what, yeah. Well, I was gonna ask, like, what was your what do you what's your gush on Little Mermaid? It's definitely the first movie I fully remember seeing in theaters. I've That's been, so crazy. Like we all have that a little bit, I've right? Been told it's all it's I all saw... Disney movies, and it's I think Fantasia might have come before Little Mermaid, but it's little if not Little Mermaid might also be my first like one of my earliest memories as well. Yeah, Roger. Was... When I saw Roger Rabbit, I felt like I got laid. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> Roger Rabbit was so fucking good. But man. I'm also like two years older than you. Guys, yeah, yeah, so uh, that's that true. Sense. I think I might have because that's the thing. Roger Rabbit may have been a home movie thing for me. Mm-hmm. I remember seeing the Roger, and we've already done, we just did Honey, I Shrunk the Kids not too long ago. I I, I remember the Roger Rabbit short at the beginning of that mm. in the theater. Yes! That was awesome. That What a great idea. What a great, I, I don't know why they don't still do the the short uh, animation piece. Give me another Baby Herman movie. Yeah, short. yeah. I would love that. Totally. Babies can't smoke cigars. That's you. That's you as a child. <laughs> this is great. He's, he's um, got a BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide 
at bp.com slash investing in America. VR training platforms like the one developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International are helping surgeons train over and over before operating on real patients. As you practice each skill, the muscle memory starts to develop. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. But yeah, yeah uh, go, going back to you, Jake. Yeah, uh, I, I mean, weirdly enough, uh, seeing Roger Rabbit was also like I got laid. Uh, but that was because the first time I had sex, the girl afterwards started speaking in a high pitched voice, just like this. <laughs> <laughs> that was that was also equally horrifying. Um, but I think I was always a fan of cartoons. I would always plop my butt down in front of Saturday morning cartoons, and it was only at the Little Mermaid that like. I understood the Disney difference. Like the way Glenn Keane animates Ariel, you see all of her expressions, you see all of her like thought processes. She, you know, the big eyes, the big smile, the everything about this character. I was just like, whoa. Like I felt that same weird obsessive energy that we've talked to or not talked to. We've read about so many filmmakers and animators before going to see like Sleeping Beauty or Cinderella for the first time and being like, oh, animation is my life now because they've made these characters come to life in a way that I didn't think was possible. Mm -hmm. The songs, obviously, I think Under the Sea, just in terms of like pure, just the rapid fire of the visual gags, the uh, the quick pace of the fish puns, just yeah. the, the way the, the way camera builds. pans and yeah, builds. Yeah, and builds visually how much, how well it builds too is so incredible. That was, and I was overwhelmed sensorily. I was like definitely... It was the first time I felt that insane, like, holy shit moment in a movie theater. And I think it's fucked up that Ariel splits before the end of the song. I mean, you have some respect. They're putting on a show. Sorry to cut you off. Jay. No, no. <laughs> you know, well, she didn't even show up for her little opening song. It's, it's, mm. it's a very impudent child. <laughs> if I can do a little more gush. I'm wearing the shirt. Yeah. Ursula. Ursula. Mm. One, one of, of the, the best, best villains. If not the ever. best, is there a better Disney villain? And, you know, she just seems so unstoppable. Yeah. And, you know, and, like, just like, and knowing terrifying. she's based on, you know, Divine, one yeah. which is also one of my favorite, you know, characters in, in, in our life, uh, <laughs> in our lifetimes, uh, rest in peace, is like uh, so wonderful. And, yeah, she was absolutely terrifying. That's kind of why, like, the, um, not to, like, shit on uh, What's-Her-Name, who was cast in the live action, but I was like, is she scary enough? No, she's too, she's, she's not threatening enough. Should have been Lizzo. Yeah, it should have mm. been, I said this too, it should have been Lizzo. I was screaming about that. But even Lizzo, I, I, the thing with Ursula in the movie is not the comedy. It's the actually she's scary part. Reminds no, me of what? my no, I find her yeah. weirdly, no, uh, any good villain is like weirdly charming. Yes, and, and like, charming. Uh, we, I mean, obviously we all watched the uh, Waking Sleeping Beauty documentary. We all know the story with Pat Carroll. Yeah. But like her sarcastic little asides, the way that she like feels more like she inhabits the modern world in this uh -huh. fairy tale land. Like she is so compelling and interesting and like fun to watch on screen. Her character design, the voice performance, everything about it is like so at the same time, while you're like spooked out and threatened by this BBW squid mommy, you know, you're also just like, ah, she seems like a good hang. It's yeah. um James Adomian, uh comedian we all know, that has a great bit about how, like, in the real world, every girl who's ever looked like Ariel. 
has been a massive jerk to you and like it's been mean <laughs> and awful and every woman that's looked like Ursula has like let you stay even after the bars close and like buy you around <laughs> yeah. the drinks. Like, yeah, yeah. The Ursulas of the world are rad. The Ursulas yeah. of the world are good friends. Agreed. But yeah. she turns all those mermaids in a little used condom creatures. Which were that which was creepy. <laughs> yeah. That's why I like it's like they <laughs> hit that balance. They're polyps. So we were talking about how black culture was like so unnecessarily terrifying, but there are some striking moments, scary moments uh, for kids in this movie, but it's just the hitting that balance. Are we allowed to spoiler? I mean, it's Little Mermaid. Uh, yeah, 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 yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. When, when Triton turns into that fucking thing? Yeah. Oh, my God, so sad. Yeah. It's terrifying. <laughs> I was like, the he little, was he's so, so ripped he's before. so powerful. He's the best <laughs> rack in the movie. You know, like, <laughs> it's just like, fucking, he looks so great. And then when he turns into, he's like, she's like, no. No, my gains. My precious also, gains. Oh man, and the weird like law contract, like mm. there's this like there's like the rule of the sea is power and the waves and like nah, it's law actually. <laughs> it's like if you if you write if you a, a lawyer could fucking take down the most mighty man in the sea, <laughs> which is fucking wild to think about as a kid. But yeah, it's like if any one movie had a poor unfortunate souls or a part of your world, it would probably be a huge success. But it is kind of insane just how consistently great, like iconic. And Kiss the Girl too. I exactly I, Kiss the Girl under the sea. I mean, the only one like the Chef song is not like necessarily up there, but even that is a great uh, number, like a yeah. fun, you know, a fun track for sure. Like it, it's it's first of all, Chef is a good guy. You know, yeah. he gets a bad rap. He's just trying to feed everybody. There's a mm -hmm. crab hanging around. He's just cooking. He wants to cook the crab just because we like Sebastian. Doesn't mm -hmm. mean that the chef ain't doing his fucking job. And honestly, too, the horny priest is also a good guy because, yes, he has a boner, but he's not molesting anyone. It's his knee. No. It's his knee. He <laughs> saw we'll it about it. All right. We should probably get into the whole history of this thing. Again, I got to remember that one. <laughs> <laughs> to tell to tell the story of Little Mermaid is to tell the story of the Disney Renaissance. So we got, we got so much to talk about. Of course, it came out in 1989, loosely based on the 1837 Danish fairy tale, which we'll talk about, um, of the same name by Hans Christian Andersen. Uh, it was written and directed by John Musker and Ron Clements, with songs written by Howard Ashman and Alan Minken, the latter of which also composed the film's score. So let's take a trip back to 1989, where we find a struggling Walt Disney Animation Studios. This all started due to the death of Walt and Roy O. Disney back in 1966 and 1971, respectively, and was cemented by the exit of longtime animator Don Bluth from the company in 1979, along with 16 other animators. We've done a Don Bluth episode, so go check that out. It was a great companion piece, but such a betrayal for Disney. Bluth, Bluth ends up taking uh, you know, uh, all those animators away like that was a huge gut punch for them and Bluth's I will I will say I never noticed this before but in the documentary they showcase all of like the Bluth runaways uh -huh. and it's like more than 50% women and uh -huh. when they show the behind the scenes footage of the Disney animators during the dark days just like goofing around, it is just a sausage fest. It is just <laughs> oh, yeah. a bunch of bored, weird nerds making little home movies together. It's so funny. Tom Bluth was like the classic, like occultist. He was like, <laughs> he was the Charlie Manson of uh, <laughs> That's animation. That's what I'm getting to. That's what I'm trying <laughs> to say. He's a much better artist than Charlie Manson. <laughs> <laughs> yes, this is true. You know, Secret of Nim, American Tale, Land Before Time. For the first time ever, Disney is in competition with another studio, like deeply. All those movies, huge movies for me as a kid. Huge. All of course. Yeah. All 
untouchable. Yeah, yeah, even Five O Goes West, I'll throw yeah, in there. It's fantastic. So the the members of Disney's board of directors then attempt a hostile takeover. This leads Roy E. Disney, Walt's brother's son, to bring in Michael Eisner and Frank Wells from Paramount to take the reins. This happens in 1984, and it was like a bit of an outside invasion yeah. for the Disney studios. It's been so kind of in the family up until then, and it's like, who are these guys? Who are these like hotshots? How do you feel about Michael Eisner? I can never really like put a pin on how I feel about Michael I mean, Eisner. he was like, a, he fucked up a lot, but if it wasn't for him, he also saved the company, mm-hmm. you know? And like, you know who I love? is Frank Wells. Okay. He's like the secret glue. You know, he yes. was like, you know, when- And when, he was kind of the unsung hero because he wasn't really the face of, like Michael Eisner was so the face of, and Jeffrey yeah. Katzenberg even. They all hated each other. And Roy Disney, they were all these big personalities yep. that fucking couldn't stand each other. They were all like trying to be big shots and like, because, they kept like opening all the Disney videos, the home videos with like their weird monologues. Because being the head of Disney meant you got to be, a, you got to be Walt Disney who was yeah. in himself a celebrity. Yes. So so what's the point of being the big muckety muck at Disney if you don't get the accolades and the the highlights and the puff pieces and all that? And they were at each other's throats, like trying to make sure they were the guy. Yeah, exactly. And fucking and and uh, Frank Wells was like the original Roy, like Roy's the the the, you know Roy Senior. And then you know Eisner was trying to be Walt, which Uh you know ain't gonna happen. Uh You know because you're not you know you're not gonna be Walt Disney because Walt Disney like he kept like changing like what he was doing. He went from making short animated films and then and then he made the first full length animated feature Snow White and then he moved on to real movies and documentaries like Mary Poppins and then he made like all these nature documentaries and then he made a theme park and then by the time he died he was trying to build a fucking city. <laughs> you know like, like, like it's like Eisner uh, wasn't trying to a city of future city. Yeah. yeah. So, <laughs> so like you know Eisner didn't have that kind of vision but he did like really want to make like what was best and like bring Disney uh, to the adults. And he succeeded at that. No one can argue that he didn't because when he, once he started bringing in Indiana Jones, uh-huh. and Star Wars, then it like really started to like take off for people who were like teenagers. So not long after the, uh, after the, these, these two joined, they pull in one more dude from Paramount that would be instrumental in his changeover. Ed's already called him criminally insane. Jeffrey Katzenberg, an up and comer that yeah. was put in charge of Disney's motion picture division. Uh, so the stat, the staff at the time, uh, there was a clash between the young and the old. We see this a lot in, when we talk about different really successful studios that have had like a really long lifespan. Uh, we even talked about it for most recently um, for Zelda. Mm-hmm. Uh, Breath of the Wild. Uh, in order to innovate in that game, they had to come up with a new way to allow for the younger folks in the company to like get their voice heard because it's yeah. really hard for the old people to hear the young people and like in court and not you know. But the old people are going to keep things a little more on the stale side. So there's j- just this weird clash going on, and that is how it seems that the Black Coltrane comes out and is this weird, just not good film for Disney, really kind of just out of sorts with them. A sword and shield, very dark. It's also the first PG-rated animation film uh, that they'd done as well. Yeah, and, and I then think, they followed yeah. it up with Fox and the Hound, which yeah. is kind of a dud. Which was also kind of a dud. Um, hey, I, hey, I, hey, I, it may not, it may be like kind of, a small story, then it's also incredibly depressing. But at, yeah. you know, wait, there is no other hand. Never mind. It's just a, just a it's sad... better than Milo and Otis. It is. Yes. <laughs> but they took 
Fox and Hound, I think also the big deal with that was was it was in a lot of like development hell too, right? Yeah, because that's because when Bluth of Don left. Bluth. Yeah, yeah so kind of had a bad taste in everyone's mouth, even if it wasn't as big of a failure as Black Culture. Back, Black Culture, they took a $20 million loss on Black Back Culture. Back in the 80s. Back in the yeah. 80s. Yeah, that's a fucking, that, that's crippling. And that's exactly how the idea that we have we would maybe have a Disney that no longer did animation was a reality back then, which yeah. is fucking crazy to think about. Now, I will say, they, I've called Katzenberg a lunatic and all this shit, <laughs> and like he's a, a horrible bastard, human. A bastard, I would never want to like have dinner with him. You know, like he's an awful person. <laughs> person but i will say yeah he fucking came in and yep. he kicked everyone's ass and he pumped out these fucking movies and i mean at least as far as it, the sleeping uh, waking sleeping beauty tells it and everything else it's like he left and that magical period of disney went away well he like he's they were it was all kush you know they were making a movie every four years yeah. they mm -hmm. were like chilling you know yeah. they were just like slowly drawing shit everything got in and, and then and he came in he's like you know what out of the animation building. He yep. like just straight up kicks them out of their own fucking building and then he sends them to a warehouse in Glendale. It, and it's then, pretty <laughs> crazy. He literally does this. He comes in. He what what was the point of of, of kicking them out to was it to like humble them actually? No, no was, he wanted the space. He just wanted the space. He just wanted his office. He wanted and... the celebrities closer to him on the yeah, line okay. because he loved schmoozing. He loved celebrities. There's you know, uh one of his many sins is how like they got um, Robin Williams to do the voice of the genie, and it, like he did it under the condition that like he wouldn't be like the you know the marquee character. His name wouldn't be on the poster. He mm. did it. They wouldn't be merchandised. Yeah, and like Katzenberg, not only did he like completely break that trust, he like hunted him down and yelled at him for doing the voice of the bat in Fern Gully, which he also <laughs> yeah. did as like a favor <laughs> to a friend, like. And, uh, and, you know, we talked about him in the Pixar episode. He was he always wanted Disney movies to be edgier, to be like more pop culture, to be less timeless and more current. And uh, that idea was shut down from Pixar because they had enough like oomph and independence. So when it was time for him to bail and he started uh, with DreamWorks, one of the first movies he produced was Ants. And he knew from working with Disney that the next Pixar movie was going to be Bugs Life. And he did it just to fuck with them. Yeah. And he ended and Shrek is a giant fuck you to Disney. Like he is mm -hmm. an agent of chaos in the story <laughs> of like timeless children's entertainment. Totally. Now, Michael Eisner also fucking did the same thing because he worked mm. on the original Universal Studios. Yes, that's yeah, right, which we this. talked about. Yeah. Which we, they originally yeah, on for wanted that. Paramount to, to uh, take part in. And by the time they were like, breaking ground on Universal. He was at Disney, and what does he do? Announces MGM Studios. This, yeah. This is the other interesting thing. The other weird, like, player in this that's also jumping around from studio to studio, like, mixing things up is Steven Spielberg, because it's the team up with him for Who Framed Roger Rabbit, which essentially saves Disney animation. Um, but then also, it's Steven Spielberg's land before time, so he's hopping over and to the And Yeah, so... Um, it's really fascinating that he both saves Disney and is also like kind of fucking with them by like being a part of these big Bluth productions as well. It's also, if you look crazy. at the parks, it's Spielberg on both parks back then. It's Back to the Future, E.T., Jaws, and then over in Disney mm -hmm. is fucking uh, is Star Wars, which he helped. We, we mm -hmm. all know he helped produce a little bit. Yeah. And Indiana Jones. Do you ever just sit and like think like, I wonder what it would actually be like to be Steven Spielberg? Oh, Wait, my we, God. I mean, we <laughs> talked about this. Call of Duty. The Call of Duty yeah. franchise exists yes. because of Steven Call of Spielberg. Duty exists because it is so absurd how much successful shit he has a hand in. Um, 
Um, and uh, one more shout out to kind of set up for the Disney Renaissance is bring these guys in, move the animators out to Glendale, and then you've got uh, Who Framed Roger Rabbit. A, a special shout out though to the Great Mouse Detective and Oliver and Company. It, it held down the fort at least. Yeah, it was an improvement from what they had. And another big external push forward was actually coming out of Japan with Studio Ghibli and uh, the work of Hayao Miyazaki and his film Castle of Cagliostro. Of course, he goes on to make Spirited Away and Princess Mononoke and all that stuff. And his work is having a huge influence over at Disney. The movie greatly inspired uh, Castle of Cagliostro specifically. Check out our loop in the third episode for more on that. Uh, it greatly inspired the climax of the film The Great Mouse Detective, directed by John oh, Musker and Ron yeah. Clements. I it's love a watching a mouse a big dumb clock. Yep. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I jumped. I stepped on that uh, hilarious joke about a mouse shooting ropes. I'm sorry, Ed. that was a it's great a- joke. I apologize. But yeah, it's kind of interesting that actually the the what the innovations going on in uh, film in Japan is is also making them like rethink their approach mm-hmm. in this cinematic way. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows VR training platforms like ForgeFX help students master their skills. There's a big learning curve with welding. Virtual reality simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. Uh, and so then you get um, John Musker and Ron Clements. Let's get into them a little bit because uh, they kind of get the party started uh, in terms of The Little Mermaid. So Musker joined Disney after college to uh, apprentice under animator Frank Thomas. Frank Thomas is known for films like Peter Pan and Lady and the Tramp. And hitting the triple crown. Mm-hmm. And Clements started out at Hanna-Barbera before getting accepted in Disney's talent development program and also got an apprenticeship with Frank Thomas and got work as a character animator on on the films The Rescuers and Pete's Dragon in the late 70s. But it's in 1981 that Clement serves as supervising animator on The Fox and the Hound, where he strikes up a lifelong working relationship with John Musker, who worked as a uh, as the character animator on that film. So they both get together on Fox and the Hound, such a turning point in film. Together they work uh, as story artists on The Black Cauldron until they're removed from that project, not really sure why, and they're later uh, paired to co-direct The Great Mouse Detective, which is enough of a success for them and the company that um, you know they are pulled in uh, by Eisner and Katzenberg, uh, who invite the animation staff to the first, quote, gong show session, <laughs> a.k.a. a big brainstorm effort to get new projects going, specifically asking for five new ideas. Clements goes to a bookstore and discovers a Hans Christian Andersen fairy tale titled The Little Mermaid. He takes the story home. He writes a two-page treatment for The Little Mermaid. Katzenberg passes on the idea at the meeting because they had just made, they were already working on a sequel to the film Splash, which came up when we talked about um, Splash Song of the South and Splash yeah. Mountain. Uh, and uh, they wanted to avoid similarities. It's actually partly why uh, Ariel's hair is red and not blonde. Mm-hmm, that makes uh, sense. Splash they, also saved Disney. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That was a huge, that was, well, 
it both saved Disney, but kind of also fucked the animating department up because it did better than like any animation film had done up to that point, I think, or yeah. at least in recent times. So it also was a proof of like, maybe we should stop doing animation a little bit, you know? So it was kind of threw them off the success of that. But yes, also saved Disney at the same time. Uh, but I guess the next day, Clements uh, comes in and uh, Katzenberg is like, I changed my mind, developed the idea further. Um, maybe, maybe something happened with the Splash sequel literally that night. I don't know. But there was actually an early attempt at Disney, uh, by the way, to adapt the fairy tale. It was part of a package film featuring several Hans Christian Andersen tales, uh, and that was in the late 1930s, Then Walt was involved in that. It was like back in that era. Uh, and it was not long after the release of Snow White and the Seven Dwarves, but the project just never got off the ground. But that oh. was actually, there was a Little Mermaid in development for a All little right. bit. Can I talk about the Hans Christian Andersen story? Yep, that's my next on Please. my notes. Yeah, let's because talk about the original never, fairy tale. I never read it. I only read the it um, is, Hans Jewish Steinman story. Much, <laughs> much like all old school fairy tales, it's a fucking bummer, dude. Yeah. Well, it's, it's oh my God, there's so much about it that is so fucking crazy. Um, so, all right. A lot of the plot is similar. There is, in fact, a Little Mermaid, the youngest of several sisters, daughter of a uh, sea king who uh, falls in love with a prince and wants to become a part of their world. But there's this entire religious angle to it that is completely missing from the movie because more so than being in love with the prince, she is told by her grandmother, uh, a character completely gotten rid of in the movie, uh, the grandmother says, oh... Well, humans are interesting because us mermaids live for 300 years and then our souls disappear because we are not one of God's goodly creatures. Yeah. Humans get to go to the afterlife and their soul is eternal. Get to go to heaven. And yeah, yeah that's why she wants to become like, human. Fuck, that sounds way better. I can't believe humans get to be redeemed forever in Christ's love. Oh, I can't wait to be a human. And so the... Uh, she is told the only way she can gain a soul is to marry a human because marriage is a joining of souls. And that's, of course, this is all very fine. Uh, she attempts to, she rescues the prince as before, and the uh, she drops the prince off in front of like a weird temple or a convent of some kind. She then realizes that she just, she, she got to get on that land. So she goes to the sea witch, who is weirdly presented Pretty similar to how she is portrayed in the movie. I'm going to read this quote. This is from a direct translation. Uh, this is when she enters the sea witch's house. Uh, there's an entire sequence where like weird man-eating tentacles and like whirlpools are like trying to kill her. And they describe how like her entire, the sea witch's yard is littered with the bones of men and merfolk alike. It's terrifying. Hell yeah. But she makes it to the sea witch's door. And uh, she says, oh, my God, this is amazing. Um, oh, my God. OK. She reached a large, muddy clearing in the forest where big, fat water snakes slithered about, showing their foul, yellowish bellies. In the middle of this clearing was a house built of the bones of shipwrecked men. And there sat the sea witch, letting a toad eat out of her mouth, just as we might feed sugar to a little canary bird. So the immediately the witch is like mama birding a frog, just like full Frenching a frog. Amazing. Um, I mean, she does some gross stuff. Yeah, yeah, I'm in, saying uh, that's what I'm saying, that it's yeah. like weirdly true to the story. Yeah. Um, she called the fat, ugly water snakes her little chickabitties, and she let them crawl and sprawl about 
on her spongy bosoms. Wow. <laughs> Those fucking eels are sucking on her. <laughs> all right. I'm just sucking all hard. Okay. I'm sitting just right next like, to you. I'm just a priest over here. In the story, <laughs> right. the sea witch gives her a magic potion. And uh, the instead of just taking her voice through magic, she physically cuts off her tongue. And the process of becoming a human is described as horrifically painful. Um, yeah. In the story, Ariel doesn't just like magically get legs. The pain is described as if a sword had cut her fishtail in two. And every time, and she passes out from the pain and wakes up with legs. Every step that she takes as a human is described as if she is walking on daggers and it pierces her feet. Wow. She's just in absolute agony, can't talk. Yeah, that's my favorite element of the story. She's just in horrific pain, just taking steps. This is great. The prince falls in love with her, uh, treats her as his like little like servant boy. Like she, there's a scene where like they dress her up as a boy so she can spend more time with him out in public. Um, and the <laughs> prince is like, "Hey, listen, I love you. I've never been more in love with you. I love that you can't talk. I love how it looks like you're always in pain. You're super hot. You're super, you, you got that. You're 16 years old. I'm 19, I think, in the story. Whatever, it's fine. Anyway, I got to go meet this lady for my parents, you know, the king and queen. It's like an arranged marriage thing. I'm going to say no so I can marry you. Don't worry. I mean, the only lady I've ever fallen in love with besides you was this girl I met at the convent when I fell in that shipwreck. But She's at a convent. Uh, you know, she's not, you know, we can't, I can't marry her. I'm going to marry you. Turns out the princess he meets was the girl from the convent who was there as part of her education from her parents. He immediately is like, fuck yeah, I'm going to marry this lady instead. <laughs> On the night of their wedding, Ariel knows that she is going to disappear into seafoam and her soul will die in infinite blackness. Her sisters emerge from the water with bald heads and say, Ariel, Ariel, wait, we sold all of our hair to the sea witch and she gave us this magic knife. You got to kill the prince right now and you'll be able to live on for another 300 years, happy in the sea and everything will be okay. And she can't do it. She falls into the ocean, becomes sea foam, at which point. At which point, and this ending is highly, uh, like, even when it was published, people were like, this is kind of an ass ball. Her spirit rises into the sky, and she sees all these invisible flying women around her. And they say, hi, we're called the Daughters of the Air. We also live for 300 years, but unlike mermaids, if we do enough good deeds, we get to go to heaven too. And you're now one of us because you were so cool about not killing that prince guy. Also, uh, if the if the daughters of the air go into your house and see that you're being a good little boy or girl, their years of atonement is lessened and they get to go to heaven quicker. If you're being naughty, they have to stay a spirit and can never and like have to stay on this planet longer. So remember, little boys and girls, remember how bad you felt for that mermaid? Eat your fucking broccoli. The end. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I could have said it better than myself, Jake. And Thank even you for at the time, like uh, Hans Christian Andersen's contemporaries were like, really feels like she should have just died, bro. This whole air yeah. spirits thing is. I think kind he was of trying to weird... avoid uh, ending so tragically, which is funny because I feel like most of those old fairy tales though is just like, and then the boy died, <laughs> and the girl died too, and you're just like, what? <laughs> 
What do you mean? At yeah. least that's like a standard fairy tale allegory. Right. Like this is just it come, the air. The daughters of the air come out of nowhere. Yeah, it's weird. It's a weird. Um, one. Now you got all these bald mermaids. Yeah, I Useless. like the bald mermaids. <laughs> uh, spongy bosoms. It's all crazy. The yeah. uh, and obviously Hans Christian. I, I'm sure you'll talk about. You have this in your notes. Hans Christian Andersen was uh, a closeted bisexual man, uh, and his journals talk about how he yearns and is has feels romantic love for like women as well as men throughout his life. And the idea of being like unable to express or join someone you love or enter a world you want to be a part of because of your physical limitations, because of just the happenstance of your birth very much could be drawn between the queer experience and the mermaid experience. Sure, yeah. A lot of people talk about how there's definitely been like essays written about um, how Ursula essentially teaches Ariel about how gender is a construct and the way (laughs) that one must become the type of lady that a man would look for, you know what I mean? How how it's it's all kind of like created and not like natural essentially yeah. when, when she's talking to her about, I'm like super paraphrasing on this stuff, but I mean, as uh, she said it best, never underestimate the power of body language. Yeah, exactly. And that's, and, and so there's been a lot written about how that was, you know, and obviously the fact that she was based on the drag queen divine, that was a big Howard Ashman thing. And yeah. just a Howard, the Howard Ashman touch, there's going to be some underlying queer culture stuff going on, even if it's subconsciously done by on, his part yeah and then triton comes around gives her legs and then shoots a giant rainbow over a wedding mm-hmm, mm-hmm. so you know it's very, everyone you know it's nice the the only thing i will also add to that though there is of course a lot of like moms in more current age being like don't sacrifice your voice for a man <laughs> yeah. that's a horrible idea well every single one of these has like a horrible lesson right at there. the end of the day it's like never do that your voice is more important than any one man yeah. I mean Beauty and the Beast is like mm-hmm. with Stockholm Syndrome uh-huh. yeah, yeah, yeah 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 totally yeah <laughs> Aladdin's a fucking liar <laughs> like, <laughs> like he's just like li- lies in almost everything he says to Jasmine it's so funny how it, it's recontextualized more and more and I do agree with that too I think Simba's I'll have to say the same thing to Whitney when we finally watch <laughs> You'd be like, yes, but just know sacrificing your voice for a man is a horrible idea. Never, ever do that. I, you um, know what? Or more importantly, I think for a life lesson for a young person is never make an agreement with someone yeah. while you are actively looking at a sea of their victims. Yeah. <laughs> just That's, a yeah. never ending cave full of screeching horrors <laughs> being like, ah, this was a mistake. Ah. You guys, You guys know about Harold the Merman? No. no. Harold the Merman was cut from the movie uh, just to kind of show how powerful Ursula was. And so mm. it was like in the beginning. And uh, he was like this little, he was like this nerdy uh, merman with glasses and he couldn't <laughs> impress the chicks. And so he went to Ursula. He's like, can you make me strong? You know? And she's like, yeah, I'll make you strong. You know? And, and you know, but what you got to do is like, if you don't bring me a water lily within three days, I mean, you become one of my uh, dirty condoms. You know, whatever, what are those creatures called? Polyps. There's a, Polyps. In the Hans Christian Andersen story, uh, her the sea witch's house is adorned with man-eating, disgusting polyps. Yeah, so he, or you become a polyp, you know? And so so Harold, he's out there. He's all strong. He's having a good time. He's meeting the ladies. They're all impressed by him now. Uh, but he can't find a water lily because they're out of season. Mm. Ursula's, you know, she's so deceptive. So mean and then he, he comes down and he's, he's like, yeah, I couldn't find them, the lily. She's like, they're out of season. <laughs> and then turns him into a polyp. <laughs> Just to kind of let you know what kind of person she is. Well, that'll happen. That'll um, happen. 
Uh, but yeah, probably unne- un- unnecessary story beat at the end of the day. I think we kind of get what her deal is by just looking at her and hearing mm. her voice. Man, how much ink does she shoot when she becomes a monster? It's unbelievable. It is wild, man. And you were right by calling her a squid. She's a squid, not an octopus. Yep, that is one of the big things. Six tentacles, not eight. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, here's where Howard Ashman and Alan Minken come in. So the project is turned into a 20-page rough script, which removes the role of the grandmother and expands on the Sea King and the Sea Witch characters. Uh, the uh, project is then shelved for some time so the company can focus on Roger Rabbit, and this is where we get to Howard Ashman and Alan Minkin. Ha- Ashman, uh, by the way, born and raised in Baltimore. Uh, he got into theater early at the Children's Theater Association where he performed in such roles as Aladdin, actually. I think that's why he was so hellbent. He was the most excited about Aladdin, it seems, like when he started getting involved in Disney. He went to college at Boston University and Goddard College, uh, later getting his master's degree in fine arts at Indiana University in 1974. Then he moved to New York where he got a job as an editor at a publishing house while writing and producing plays to middling success. Then in 1977, he was hired as the artistic director of the WPA Theater, and that is where he met Alan Minken. Minken grew up in New York City, his father a dentist who played piano on the side, and his mother was an actress, dancer, and playwright. Needless to say, he got into music at an early age, taking piano and violin class uh, lessons, and uh, composing by the age of nine, winning awards for composition by the age of nine. Wild. He went to school eventually for music, and then joined the BMI Musical Theater Workshop shop where he honed his songwriting chops and held down various odd jobs within the music and theater industry, including um, being a songwriter for Sesame Street. Uh, Mencken and Ashman met at the BMI workshop and during a time that they were both working on different projects, many that didn't see the light of day. That is until Howard Ashman picked Alan Mencken to write the music for his musical adaptation of the Kurt Vonnegut novel, God Bless You, Mr. Rosewater, mm-hmm. which opened at the WPA Theater in 1979 and got great reviews. Minkin said, when Howard and I were in the room, it was pure creative energy. It was no holds barred wrestling. There was only one rule, and that rule was don't leave the room without a good idea and a good song. Uh, Their next musical would be Little Shop of Horrors, based on the 1960 black comedy film of the same name, which opened, uh, their musical opened in 1982. It would go on to run for five years, set the box office record for highest grossing off-Broadway show of all time. It's like one of the ultimate Mm -hmm. uh, (laughs) off-Broadway, you know, successes. Like, it is just such a perfect alt musical type of deal that just, you know, based in sci-fi. I, I, again, I really want to do a, a episode on it one of these days. I just love this musical. And I didn't even realize it was these guys. And I had, I guess I should have known because I definitely watched Howard back when, but it all gets jumbled together. Um, yeah. and, uh, but regardless, um, uh, Ashman then works with composer Marvin Hamlish instead of Minkin on his only Broadway production, a flop called Smile, which closed after just 48 performances. Now, what you need to know about Smile is so important. Uh, what you need to know about Smile is actually like he's working on this musical actually while he gets hired by Disney while like Disney's he's in talks with Disney it all kind of runs parallel I thought it was like he failed at smile then he gets hired by Disney but it was kind of like running parallel uh so he was like working on I think he started work on Little Mermaid while he was still working on smile well but you know the connect one of the connections well yes yeah Jody Benson right correct 
Yeah. yeah. So uh, this this is the musical um, Ashton would first work with a young singer named Jody Benson, uh, who made her Broadway debut just three years before in Kenny Ortega's Marilyn and American Fable. Kenny Ortega High School Musical Hocus Pocus. Uh, ah. Kenny Ortega, which is kind of interesting. Yeah. And um, in Smile, she performed a song called Disneyland, written by Howard. It is described by Benson as the first piece of the puzzle of my life, the first step of the journey, so to speak. Disneyland is so beautiful, and I meant to send it to you, Ed. I don't know if you've heard that song. I never song. heard it. I, uh, we're going to listen to it now, but um, production thing, you won't hear it right now, but uh, we're going <laughs> to listen to it now. I always th- I, I, I ever, I've been listening to this song, and I meant to send it to you before we sat down here, but we'll listen to it uh, soon. Uh, and I, I just, it's such a beautiful, sad, like incredibly sung song by Jody Benson written by Howard Ashman before he gets hired at Disney. Yeah. It's a song about, it's, it's kind of like a to Moscow kind mm. of song, but about Disneyland, about kind of being saved by Disneyland. Oh, cool. It's beautiful. I can't and, wait. and yeah. Uh, and actually April, can we hear some of that right now? That's where I saw you. When I heard it, calling, calling me. And April hit it. That was beautiful. <laughs> um, so so uh, it's kind of interesting. Smiles a flop, and and him and Hamlish hated each other. And him and yeah, <laughs> you and, know, and Hamlish he was Hamlish did chorus line. Like, yes, he was a big deal. Big and he deal. did a lot of movies too, uh, like The Sting and The Spy Who Loved Me. Very lucky for Alan Menken that yeah. they hated each other because and I think he it's. Got- if they had gotten along well and if Smile was a success, things might have been a little different. But instead, he goes back to Minkin and says, uh, and pulls him in for the Disney project. It's actually Howard that gets Minkin involved yeah. in Disney. You know what's weird is that like Smile was his pro- was, was the like his troubled uh, al- uh, play, and then also Brian Wilson Smile was his troubled. Yeah, album. yeah. Mm. It's 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 really fascinating. Um, and I think it's it's one of those like musicals, like the the one that got away type of musicals too. It's like a yeah. beautiful musical. Uh, but uh, yeah, it, it because that's a flop. It really helped out Minkin, and it kind of helped out Jodie Benson. She feels in a lot uh, in large part that she was pulled in for Little Mermaid. Because Howard loved her talent and uh, felt a little bad that Smile didn't propel her further, yeah. and so um, that's how she got in as Ariel. But uh, before we get to that, music biz giant David Geffen is who introduced the powers that be at Disney to Howard and Alan. Uh, Howard had been recommended by Geffen to Disney, quote uh, as quote a writer who knew how to integrate music with drama in an original and compelling way. When presented with a few project possibilities, Howard felt most drawn to Disney animation where an adaptation of the Hans Christian Andersen uh, fairy tale The Little Mermaid was being developed Howard then asked me to come aboard to collaborate on the songs and compose the scores that was a quote from Minkin by the way 
Uh, so with this team now leading the way, they decide to revise the story into a Broadway musical structure. That is how instrumental Howard and Allen are to the Disney Renaissance. Like there yeah. would be no Disney Renaissance mm-hmm. without their being brought in and saying, hey, we need the I want trope leading lady song in the as one of the first numbers. We need we needed to flow like this. Ron Musker said, Howard was a very intimidating guy. He was very opinionated. He was very strong-willed. He was very sure of himself. So we had to learn how to work with Howard. Although we thought Howard was brilliant and great, we're kind of low-key, and he was more of a cut-to-the-chase guy. And you see this in behind-the-scenes footage. You know? Yeah, well, also, he knew he was dying. That too. You know, like he knew he had- And to enter the absolute gut punch tragedy going on in the background of all of this. So he wasted no, he couldn't waste time. Yeah. You know, he's winning the Oscars in a hospital bed. Yeah. You know, and it's like, so it was was a crazy thing and no one, only Mencken knew. That's why we had somebody uh, uh, in the Sunday study group, patreon.com forward slash whizbrew. Every Sunday we cover the thing we're covering. We watch Little Mermaid. They were like, yeah, I watched Howard because you so highly recommended it and it ruined my weekend. <laughs> and it is true. Watch Howard, but also, man, he, Howard man, he's going to make you sad. Yeah. And like Howard Ashman also lost his like. Basically, his husband. Yeah, like right before he started making Little the, it's, Mermaid. Do we say AIDS epidemic, HIV positive? Yeah, yeah. we haven't so, said it yet, but okay. yeah, that was what was that happening. was what a- a- Howard was was afflicted with, and this is the height of the AIDS epidemic uh, during this time. Yeah, and then if you watch the movie Howard, a lot of it actually uh-huh. talks about the AIDS epidemic in New York City. Yes, and how, and how it was just a complete fucking disaster. Yes, it is so such a strong piece, uh, uh, such a such a great documentary to watch. For so many reasons, but um, yeah, it is it is so tragic and sad, uh, especially because like it was so you know how how joyous all the music is, you know. Yeah. Um, but anyways, but I'll cry later in the episode when I read that quote. Um, <laughs> Ashman and Minkin actually wrote the songs. Uh, right by the animators. So one thing is they set up shop just in that, I guess, that Glendale space. Mm-hmm. And we're, we're at, so they're literally workshopping under the sea, let's say, and the animators are drawing and it is absolutely having an effect on the stuff that they're drawing in the other room, which is really cool. Uh, Ron Clement said, they had a room that was adjacent to where the storyboard guys were working with all of their synth equipment, and they wrote the songs right there, which was the only film, I think, that we've been involved in that uh, with that's really worked that way. I know that with a lot of older Disney films, it was done that way, and that was a great thing because you actually heard the songs. Uh, so part of your world was based on Howard's conception that in every big musical, as we mentioned before, early on, there's that female lead sitting alone. Usually it's on a tree stump or below some columns or something. And it's this very important space to her. And she creates the heart of the story. Howard said, it's her dream. You're not going to miss what the film's about. That's the central issue of the entire film. By having her sing it, it makes that point indelibly. She wishes she were human. And at the end of the film, she will become human and live happily ever after. That's what she wants. Uh, and this is like one of the biggest factoids about Little Mermaid when you're like researching it. Of course, Jeffrey Katzenberg, uh, there's like a, a, a test screening of the unfinished version of the film for mostly kids. Yeah, it's all kids that they brought to Glendale. Yes. And then that part part of your world was like just like sketchbooks instead yes. of actually cartoon. And so the kids yeah, got rest. Storyboards. 
Yeah. And, and some kid dropped his popcorn and Katzenberg's like, well, fuck this shit. Right. <laughs> <You know? laughs> and it is Howard who said over my dead body, who who threatened to walk if that song didn't stay in the, in the musical, all that stuff to help convince him. Uh, they use the allegory of uh, Wizard of Oz because uh, somewhere over the rainbow uh, was yeah. almost cut from Wizard of Oz and obviously how instrumental that song was. And they do get the song obviously to stay in but it is very funny they had to fight tooth and nail for part of your world which is yeah. so crazy and Katzenberg totally admits how embarrassed he is by the situation sure. now sure it's just so but uh, at least in his defense this was the they were creating the template with this movie yeah you know I mean yes they'd done animation before uh, that was based on fairy tales. They'd done music in it and everything like that. But mm-hmm. the, this full-on Broadway treatment of animated films was established with Little Mermaid. So as they're they're writing the rules, which is going to make like production people nervous, you know? Yeah. Um. Uh. For sure. But uh. Uh. Yeah. Also, uh, legend has it that Howard also got the team to change the character of Sebastian from the from an English butler crab, or possibly even lobster, is what I read somewhere, to Clarence, uh, named Clarence, to a Jamaican crab named yeah. Sebastian. Uh, apparently it was Trinidadian initially, but the act, the voice actor auditioned with a Jamaican accent, so they changed it to, from Trinidad to oh, Jamaican. Oh. Okay. Apparently. This is what, yeah, one of the things I, I gleaned. Yeah. The um, Also, he's very, uh, Sebastian's very Zazu. I feel like mm-hmm. there's like a lot of characters like that, you know, in mm-hmm. all the Disney movies. I mean, it's, it's a classic trope. Uh, it's in Shakespeare. Yeah. The uh, attendant who's like, oh, no, protagonist, don't do that. Like, right. it's all. Uh, oh, I mean, uh, Ashman also uh, the care. I mean, we talked about how uh, Ursula was inspired by Divine, but it's specifically Ashman grew up in Baltimore, mm. same as John Waters. And that's why he was the one that was like, hey, have you tried, like, you really got to, like, think about her in terms of divine, this character, because uh, previously Ursula's designs were kind of like a lionfish, like kind uh-huh. of just like a more gaunt, cheekbony, evil witch kind of character. Right. Yeah. And uh, that little note uh, helped with the character. And when it came time for her voice performance, Pat Carroll, legendary voice actress, uh, it was Ashman kind of doing a version of Poor Unfortunate Souls with all those snarky little asides and like kind of self-referential notes that uh, Pat Carroll in the documentary uh, relates the story. That's like, uh, hey, could I steal some of that for the performance? And Ashman looks right back at her and says, I was hoping you would. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, Yeah, Pat Carroll said, I got the whole attitude she wants. Uh, I got the whole attitude from him speak, talking about Howard and his shoulders would twitch in a certain way and his eyes would go a certain way. I got more about the character from Howard singing that song, uh, Poor Unfortunate Souls, than from anything else. And you also see footage of him working with uh, Jody Benson. Which and is, oh, God, so, so heart wrenching. Oh, I love it. And. And he's he's working with her and and you know uh, giving her essentially line reads uh, for each like song you know lyric and everything, but just like in singing with her and stuff. And you know you you just you, he had the whole thing inside of him, you yeah. know. And and they and they were just like, yeah, feed it feed it to me. I you you clearly have a vision for this and know exactly what you want. Mm-hmm. So they would just allow him to like give feed them essentially the 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 musical number the way he has it in his head, and then they would just kind of mimic a lot of what he was doing, uh, for sure. A little Pat Carroll side note: 
Uh, she was also in Little Mermaid 2, Return to the Sea, where she yes. played Ursula's sister, Morgana. Yes. Who was uh, a lot thinner. What was kind of the gaunt thing you were you were talking about? Yeah, uh, my, I watched my, that movie this morning. It's horrible. My, <laughs> my favorite, uh, my favorite. What about the prequel? Have you seen the uh, the the one no, that came after that? That's probably I, worse. I missed the prequel, but that you know, at least Ariel's a fucking fish again. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so for also my favorite uh, factoid about Ursula voice acting is the part was originally written for B. Arthur, but she turned it down, or at least her agent turned it down. Her agent was apparently offended that they like saw B. Arthur as a witch. Oh, <laughs> just be the witch. And so apparently the agent didn't even show B. Arthur the script, which has got to be Ooh, so devastating. Oh my God. Uh, unbelievable. And also Elaine Stritch was initially cast as well, but she clashed with Howard Ashman too much. And I bet it was oh, some of that yeah, line reading and stuff like that. Elaine Stritch is like a big performer too. And yeah. so I bet like she fucking lost her mind with Howard. Yeah. But you know, B. Arthur would have been great with Buddy. Yeah. I think B. Arthur would have been pretty great. Great. Yeah, I, I mean, Pat Carroll is iconic in the role, so, so yeah. uh, I'm not going to make any bones about it, but I love Carroll also described the character as, quote, an ex-Shakespeare actress who now sold cars <laughs> is how she looked at Ursula, <laughs> which I thought was great because you do have that. You have this like lowbrow, highbrow thing happening all at once, yeah. you know? She's both trashy and like incredibly like elegant and you know what I mean? It kind of nails that balance, I feel like, so well. Why does she want to have such a good singing voice? Uh, oh, uh, Ursula? Ursula! Yeah, like why? Like, what's her motivation for stealing the voice? Like, I, I that's like the one thing I never really. Got. I mean, it seems like um, Is she putting on shows down there. It seems for like the music's very important to the creatures of the sea, just yeah. based on under the sea and all that stuff. Mm -hmm. You know, maybe it's just like like any other character. Like, she wants what she can't have, and like that's what she doesn't so, have. Yeah. In the original story, uh, she really represents a more primordial form of witchcraft, where like. She's just kind of obeying the laws of nature and she's just like, you know, neither good nor bad in a way. She just kind of represents like this kind of darkness and chaos at the heart of the natural world. And mm -hmm. in the movie, they definitely indicate that there's some kind of past like rivalry between uh, the S Ursula and King Triton in a way that isn't implied in the original story. It's led to a lot of like interesting reinterpretations of the character. There's a great fan comic that kind of casts Ursula as this like um, wronged woman that like was given the short end of the stick due to like patriarchy and stuff, which is really fascinating. But it's, it's, yeah, I think she just really wants to, she wants the, 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 the pitchfork. She wants the magic pitchfork. She yeah. wants to rule the ocean. She hates King Triton. And by fucking over Ariel, that just accomplishes her goal. Mm. Um, God, speaking of Ariel, like, Glenn Keane's, like, character animation, I can't get over this. Like, the amount of work they did to capture, like, the ultimate, like, lovable 80s tween yeah. in this character. Yeah. Uh, you know, famously, Alyssa Milano was the model reference that Glenn Keane started with. Uh, especially as her starring role in the sitcom Who's the Boss, like, yeah. specifically. Yeah. And if you do go look, you'll see that hair in certain mm -hmm. shots, that big poofy kind of thing that going swoop, on. That swoop, that, yeah, yeah, that solid aerial swoop. Yeah, uh, They even filmed a bunch of shots with a uh, live model, Sherry Stoner, to kind of capture all of those, like, little... Uh, expressions and movements like you can find it all over lost media YouTube also, is the original footage of like 
Sherry doing the dinglehopper combing motion that's like right out of the movie. They also use footage of astronaut Sally Ride when she was in space for, oh, for a reference for like hair and yeah, all that stuff for the underwater stuff. Mm-hmm. And then really whenever it didn't look like it was underwater enough, they just drew a bunch of bubbles everywhere. And yeah. Like, you got the point. But but Glenn Keane's really interesting here because he just has this feeling deep in his heart that he is the person for the job to make Ariel and, and to, to to design Ariel and, and animate Ariel. And actually, that was out of form for him. He was much more he was originally assigned to Ursula because he was more associated with larger, more powerful characters. He did the bear and the fox and the hound, for example. Mm-hmm. But there was just something that drew Love him. The talking bear. Yeah, yeah. He was there was something that drew him to this character. And um he also described he said also the her she was based on his wife whom he whom he claimed looked just like her quote without the fins. <laughs> so yeah, so there was a little bit there as well. But it's it's really interesting like that he just had this serendipitous moment. He was like, I need to do this. This is this is this is my thing. And um yeah it was like it, she's so iconic. Park, yeah. yeah. And I mean I think most of the Disney princesses thereafter were, were based on her. Oh yeah, the design. big eyes, little mm-hmm. nose type of thing. Mm-hmm. Just all of it. Even the hair like choices with the hair, you know, in those ways like yeah, it just uh he just completely nailed the like ideal. I mean, think about it. How many people uh, you know, are like how many little girls and stuff like want to be Ariel? You know what yeah. I mean? I mean it's Still yeah, I mean, he was like the guy after that. He went yeah. on to be the character animator for The Beast, which kind mm-hmm. of takes, you know, the brutish, strong character, but also the innate fuckability of a Disney princess, because everybody wants to throw down with the goddamn Beast. Totally. Uh, it's, the, mm-hmm. it's, it's, it's the collective horror in America's hearts when he turns human and you're just like, no, no, that's not what I want. Give me that fucking buffalo guy. I want to fuck that buffalo guy. <laughs> the uh, uh, Also, shout outs to Horny Jack Hammer. He did The Priest um, and The <laughs> Castle on the cover of the VHS. Uh, their legend has it. Uh, he was prolific. He was NBA basketball player level of fucking uh, just people in general. He's, mm-hmm. His numbers are crazy. It was, some say, 2,000, some say 3,000. Uh, it's unbelievable. But he did The Priest and uh, will always have that those knees because of him. Yeah. <laughs> Sweet, sweet ejaculate me. <laughs> um, we're kind of split between animation and voice acting, so I'll just keep moving forward with the animation talk. Yeah. Uh, this movie cost more than any other Disney film in decades. It also did something they used to do, uh, which was hiring actors, as you said, to perform motion reference, not just uh, for Ariel. They also had an actor perform as uh, Prince Eric, and then they used that for reference. Um, and they used uh, Jody Benz's recorded dialogue as well. She'd already recorded that. So they used her voice acting for reference for Ariel. Um, Effects supervisor Mark Dindall, who went on to direct The Emperor's New Groove, stated there were over a million bubbles drawn for the film. So there, there was bubbles. there was literally an animation studio in Glendale, California, but they also set up a team in Lake Buena Vista, Florida, within Disney MGM Studios. We actually talked a little bit about that uh, when we talked about uni- our Universal Studios oh. theme park episode. Yeah. Imagine, um, imagine being on that studio tour. And you're looking down on like those empty animation desks and they're and you're thinking like, wow, that's where they made the little mermaid. But deep down, it's like, no, nah, they just did the bubbles, bro. You <laughs> well, actually, child. They, they did. They helped with inking, I believe, and, and, and stuff and color colorization. It was actually um, a third party Pacific Rim Productions, a China based firm in Beijing. 
uh, which helped with the bubble effects animation. Oh. Yes, they had, they had three different studios. Glendale was the na- main one, but they did ha- have to get external help because that's just how huge this movie was. Uh, this was also the final film that Disney put out that used the traditional hand-painted cell animation as digital coloring would be incorporated into Aladdin and more computer support moving forward for films yet to come. There was one shot, though, that did experiment with CAPS, Computer Animated Production System, and the colorization uh, aspect. And that happens at the very end, Ariel and Eric's wedding ship sailing away under a rainbow. Apparently they got coloration help. I think it was even almost more of a just a test run on the software, if nothing else. It's a good-looking rainbow. It's a good-looking rainbow. Uh, so and to put it in context, the xerography, uh, like the Xerox kind of xerography technology used to make Disney movies, had been that way since 101 Dalmatians back in 1961. So decades of animation approach was essentially scrapped after this movie. That's how like special this movie is, um, in terms of animation approach for Disney. Yeah, because Aladdin, like like the Cave of Wonders, is all. Uh, yeah, CGI and yeah. shit like that. And so there's a, and then what was the first one? The Rescuers Down Under was yes. like the first CGI. That was mix. the first, like, fully. It was like they, they, couldn't even believe they had signed up for a feature-length film as they had never even tried it before fully yeah. using the software. They were like, why are we doing it with the movie? Why wouldn't we do this with a 15-minute short as a test run? One uh, of the few sequels of Disney animation, like official sequels. Like there's Lady in the Tramp. I mean, there's um, which, Lady in the Tramp had a sequel. And the Mermaid had a v- sequel. Direct-to-video things out of Australia. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, but Rescuers Down Under is like a true sequel that went to theaters. And they only did that mm-hmm. with Rescuers Down under fantasia had a sequel uh-huh. uh wreck it ralph frozen mm-hmm. and i think that's it that's it and they're more they're more keen on doing it nowadays but that was a whole weird i, I was actually gonna it's funny you brought up watching the sequel this morning because i was gonna ask you if you gave any kind of a shit you don't write the direct-to-movie sequels that's not something you're like nah. have into or knowledge no they're of. trash yeah they're all like whatever they're rushed right? out they're all money grabs and I remember them. That's looking Eisner at them as too, such. by the way. Yeah, yeah. yeah that's, very, that's very much Eisner being like. Let's well, and it so- did. It did kind of like take a little away of from the original property a little bit to have that going on. Well, I think it was like one of the things that helped propel Little Mermaid into stardom was VHS tapes. Yeah, mm-hmm. you know, and the VHS first started coming around, and the Disney Vault existed. And so Little Mermaid was like the first one that went straight to video right after the theater, and then people bought the fucking shit out of it. Right, right. And there was one canceled uh, direct-to-video sequel for Little Mermaid. It was actually completely done by Horny Jack Hammer. It was called <laughs> Flounder Fucks a Goose. Yeah, <laughs> and uh, it was apparently while so Scuttle watches and while yeah. Scuttle watches it was the so last deprived. Buddy Hackett. Ever had before his untimely death. <laughs> was just making horny, just uh, oh, that flounder really does know how to suck a ghost. <laughs> uh, yeah, it is the lost film, apparently. Also, an actual flounder is disgusting looking. <laughs> yeah, oh, yeah, for yeah, sure. yeah, yeah, nothing yeah. like the yeah, uh, they're sure. flat and they got eye, they lay flat on the ocean floor and they got two eyes on one side of their head and they face up to make sure they don't get eaten by God, something else. God help them they're all. They're fucking gro- Google actual flounder. <laughs> and uh, yeah, no, they're gross creatures. Uh, there was also go- that animated series. I don't remember it being oh, any yeah. good. Oh, I yeah. did not do any research about it, but I am no. acknowledging 
that they did in fact do a full animated series. That it lasted a couple seasons. series. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. It was mm-hmm. on a lot. I watched it because I was, you know, you're just waiting to get the bonkers, you know, mm-hmm. which was fucking great stuff. <laughs> I was more um, of a marsupilami guy myself, but you know what? <laughs> different strokes for different folks. Uh, going back to the voice acting, uh, Christopher Daniel Barnes did the voice of Prince Eric, and after that, he played the titular character in the Spider-Man animated series. He was also Greg Brady in those Brady Bunch movies in the 90s. Uh, oh, okay. Jim Carrey did read for that role. Wow. Didn't get it, though. That would have been interesting. Uh, Samuel E. Wright voiced Sebastian. Uh, Wright came up in Nails New York it. City Theater and Broadway and got into TV and film in the 80s, most notably in a movie I kind of want to go back and watch uh, as Dizzy Gillespie in the 1988 Clint Eastwood film Bird. Oh, I need to see that movie. Yeah, I was like, oh, I didn't even know that existed. The Charlie was... Parker movie. Mm-hmm, yeah, mm-hmm. I really want to check that out. Uh, Wright couldn't do a Trinidadian accent, as we said, so he switched to Jamaican. Howard kept it. He was so fun and physical when doing the part, they filmed him for reference for the animator especially during uh, Under the Sea. So again, some more reference stuff. Uh, Why don't you tell us a little bit uh, more about Buddy Hackett as this really (laughs) was the role, Ed, that, uh, right, kind of saved his career. Yeah, no, I mean, it's not like his he was... You know, he was old. He, he was, was like done. a legend at that point. Yeah, he was a legend. But, but not like, really doing anything currently. Yeah, know? and then like getting a Disney movie was like such a big deal for Buddy. And, you know, he he just absolutely hit it out of the park. He had, but it took a while. He was very nervous when he got when he got hmm, cast when he got cast. And the first, I think it was um oh, what were the what was the director's name? Uh, what was it? Uh, Clements was mm. like standing over him on his first day, and, like, and he was making him really nervous. Mm. And then Buddy just turned to was like, "How about you get out of here and let me do this alone?" <laughs> and uh, and then he left, and he fucking nailed Scuttle like all in one take because he was just like he couldn't have because like these old timey comedians like Buddy done a couple movies for sure, but like. They don't understand not getting laughs like as they're telling jokes. Like of course. Dangerfield had the same problem when he started doing movies and stuff like that. And so he was really in his head. And then when Scuttle became like the fucking the hit comedian of the whole movie, yeah. you know, it was just uh it was a big thing for Buddy. And then Buddy also voiced it in the series and he voiced it in uh in The Little Mermaid 2. And so yeah, he it's went funny. on to do it. You know, we, we like Scuttle is such an important part of the comedy of the film. Usually like it's Sebastian or Ariel or those characters that get more of the like or flounder. Yeah. But Scuttle's so important to this movie, like in terms of just having being that comic relief element and, and he's the only thing that can go from the land of the sea yes so, so he's, he's like the messenger and also shit. helping with like just plot movement and stuff like that yeah, it's and a so- dingle hopper <laughs> in the original story in the original story it was ariel's sisters that would go to the surface once on their birthdays and come back and be like yo they got clouds up there it's fucking crazy and then another <laughs> one would come back and be like yo i just saw buildings have you heard of this shit <laughs> Uh, also, shouts not Buddy Hackett's technically not his first Disney film. He was in The Love Bug. Oh, yes. <laughs> and he refused to make the sequels, which he totally regretted. Oh, interesting. And um, But the the thing with, um, with Buddy Hackett that I love is him and Don Rickles, uh, like... Mm. couldn't stand each other. 
they they were <laughs> like funny. they were very much just like at the Friars Club. They were big rivals and stuff like huh. that. Like wouldn't didn't like would one would leave the room when the other one came in and stuff like that. And so when now if you go to California Adventure where the Little Mermaid ride is, Scuttle is kind of like the narrator of the ride. Mm-hmm. And it's it's Buddy's voice, and it's a lot of fun. He's telling the story of the Little Mermaid. Mm-hmm. And then right across the lagoon is a giant Don Rickles, uh, Mr. Potato Head animatronic. And so like, even in death, so they're, they're like rival each other <laughs> That's awesome. Like at, at DCA, That's fucking which awesome. I feel like is the coolest thing in the world. Um, also, just a little factoid, Michael Richards and Bill Maher also auditioned for the role of Scuttle. Could you imagine Bill Maher? Yeah, wow. I think Michael Richards probably would have done a good job of Bill Maher. I don't uh, see that at all. Yeah. Uh, Uh, New rule. Maybe if you put down the cell phone, you could learn what the fuck a comb is. Huh? Huh? Um, And of course, we're going to return. I mean, I think we already kind of uh, actually covered this, but that priest boner, man. But I will say this is one of my strongest memories of this movie was like my cousin put the VHS t- in and slowed it down yes. and we found the, and 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 the, you could barely see that boner and the advent of the VHS and at home movie watching though completely changed this was like the first time this was happening because we finally could scrutinize a single frame of a shot like never yeah. before because of VHS tapes so of course you had that whole thing um and then uh and and by the way just look at the there's a total side-by-side boner to knees uh, image you can look up online to see that it's actually just uh, clearly like one of his weird knees. And yes, the knees are weird. Yeah. Also, they like pop out. Yeah, it's a weird knee for sure, but it's definitely, it seems to be his knees and not an actual Probably a victim of Katzenberg just screaming over the animator's (laughs) shoulders telling him to move faster and shit. You know, and so like things got dropped. But, you know, the dick on the castle. The dick on the castle seems a lot more, it almost seems like there's a vein on it and everything. Um, Disney insists this, this was just an accident the result of a late night rush job to finish the art. It has since been revised for the second release of the film. Uh, and uh, But these two things led to an Arkansas woman filing a lawsuit against the Walt Disney Company in 1995, which was dropped after two months uh, mm. about their their alleged indiscretion. I, I will, or, or um, whatever you want to call it, their being sexual deviants, um, uh, and it did result in uh, uh, horny uh, Jack Hammer's uh, firing. I and mean, execution. it was horny Jack Hammer was hired when that single frame of pornography was in the original Rescuers. Right. That was oh, when he like really right. impressed people. They were like, "You got what it takes, <laughs> horny Jack." He did sex in the desert and the or whatever the it was in the clouds. And yeah. Everything. Well, that was such a weird. It's important. It is good to actually bring it up because it was such a weird uh, re- relic from this time. Was how like is Disney actually trying to feed us like? Secret horniness. <laughs> what was the Aladdin thing? Take off your clothes. Yeah, little girls take off their clothes. Yeah, 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 yeah or whatever. Yeah, yeah. And uh, so, yeah, and this was like this big. And then Lumiere was just a rapist. Oh, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> but I mean, we don't have to get into all that. He's French. It's a cultural thing. That's but it just was, how they do. It's an interesting thing from the culture that I feel like still pervades ne- now in, in, our, in the viewpoint that like Hollywood's just a bunch of pedophiles and this, that, Name and the other. Name one popular cultural movement that is trying to claim <laughs> that Disney is corrupting children based on insanely uh, just flagrant and trumped up claims. Yeah, Ron DeSantis out there really fighting that good fight, huh? Got married at Disney World. Ha <laughs> ha! 
<laughs> insane. Did, did you well, know? That? Well, as of this, they probably saw the bill and it was like, "I'm going to get these fuckers." As of this recording, <laughs> Disney has, has again struck back on his uh, frustrating campaign to shut them down by uh, the, uh, taking away like a billion dollar project that they were going to build yeah, in Florida. Yeah, they were going to bring 2,000 jobs. 2,000 jobs. And they're just going to keep it here in California. Yep, because of all that going on. You know, on. that's a fucking fight, though. Bro. I know, it's like, interesting. Disney we're watching this in DeSantis, real time. Like, that's why, I mean, like, DeSantis, you know, he's like a real foe. You yeah, know? Like, no. He just, like, got done kicking the shit out of books. We're, 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 we're <laughs> <laughs> books have yeah. been around for thousands of years. If you're a book in Florida right now, <laughs> you are pissing your pants. Yeah, man. The whole the whole country got so <laughs> mad, too, you know. Oh, yeah, it's, it's, you know. It's like, but the Floridians are like, what, books? What, books? <laughs> <laughs> it's the next um, Pixar movie. It's uh, what if books had feelings and they were in Florida? <laughs> <laughs> but you can't. I mean, like when you fuck with like Disney's like money and property, it ain't even about being or saying gay no more. You know, like <laughs> fucking he, the Disney police is a real thing. DeSantis going to come outside late at night one night and he's just going to see a guy dressed like Goo Goofy fucking <laughs> his dog. <laughs> This has like, oh, you're you're yucked. <laughs> uh, what's I gonna say? Oh, so we're, we're uh, you know when my goofy... name off your gorge darn mouth. <laughs> you know when Goofy comes, it goes. All oh, <laughs> right, can we please for a moment? Good lord. Uh, I mean, we know Goofy comes because otherwise, how is Max there? <laughs> All right, good. Just for it, that's a great movie. Though. Yeah, that is good. Another Goofy movie is good. Yeah, but, a goofy um, movie, man. A Goofy movie. Rather, so much good. sperm in that movie. Oh my. All right. Uh, I was going to get into the release and the ride and 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 some final quotes. Do we have anything else we want to talk about, like in terms of the making of the movie? Before I get into that and then cry reading the Howard Ashman quote. Or no, whatever. no, no, no. Now Go we're on. good. I want to see you cry. <laughs> the film premieres on November seventeenth, nineteen eighty nine. It actually starts a little small. It comes in third place in the box office behind Harlem Nights and Look Who's Talking. I mean, great films. Um, but of course, it's also because it's entering the box office with the, I think a bit of a stigma. I think it, then it grows. From there, obviously, everyone yeah. realizes like this is a fucking masterpiece. Look who's talking is when my mom taught me about the birds and the bees. So funny. I remember she, I that the, time. Yeah. yeah, the sperm would came. I was like, what's yeah. that? I've actually She's been chilled. Like, yeah. <laughs> I've been genuinely or did the movie kind of force their hand a little. <laughs> <laughs> I've been genuinely wanting to go back and watch those movies because that was just such a weird rut. That and Three Men and a Baby. I was like, I should re-watch that now because it was such a large, huge part of the culture back then. Yeah, it really was. Um just movies with like babies in them. Uh, uh, in a way that baby boom, yeah, all that, yeah, it's probably why. Uh, so still, uh, this film earns sixty four percent more than Oliver and Company overall, and is this heavily critically lauded thing starts the Disney Renaissance. That's the template. They follow it from there on. Um, yes, you do have a sequel and a prequel. Little Mermaid two, Return to the Sea, came out in two thousand. Uh, I think the main cool thing about that is just Pat Carroll comes back to voice the Ursula's sister, as you said. Tara Strong, uh, prolific voice actress, uh, plays Ariel's daughter Melody, and they did get Jodie Benson to return uh, uh, as well. Oh, and Jodie Benson also, because we were talking about this when we were doing the watch along, um, she does do also the voice of Ursula in disguise. Oh, as, really? Which I think is kind of evident, but I was like, I had to go check, and yeah, That's she cool. does do that. So she's Jodie Benson's got a small part in the new movie. Oh, cool. Good. Because she's lovely. She seems great. And uh, uh, then there was also Little Mermaid Ariel's Beginning, which came out in 2008 and serves as a prequel film. King Triton bans music from Atlantica. <laughs> what in the... What the hell? What an asshole. <laughs> what a jerk. Music. I love when like the most innocuous thing is like banned and deemed as terror. Like it's like Footloose, yeah. I guess. Yeah, exactly. It's just like the most like uh, uh, innocent thing is banned or whatever. Finloose. Looked at as horrible. <laughs> Finloose. That's what they should have called it. <laughs> 
the uh, then you have, of course, the Little Mermaid Ariel's Undersea Adventure. Ed, let's talk about it for a little bit. Um, I watched the the ride along. I mean, they really have you kinda, never been on through? Never been on. I don't. I may have as a little kid, but no, it, no, it, it's, it's right? relatively new. Okay, so, yeah. so no, they really packed like the whole movie into uh, Dark Ride. Yeah, no, and it's the longest uh, Dark Ride at uh, Disneyland. Uh, also, so I, that's a that's a. Lot it's of always fun. fascinating how they do the music mix on that, so that you never feel like you're hearing like the other music bleeding into the music you're currently hearing. Do you well, know they I mean? also have speakers inside the giant clamshell, and they use the uh, same okay. Omnimover system as like the um, as the Haunted Mansion. And yeah, stuff it's like one of those. That. It's constantly going, and you got to like basically hop right a doom it. buggy, mm-hmm. like but it's a clam. You but know? I think <laughs> I think the big standout ride is the the animatronics are are amazing. They are amazing, and also it's just the way the ride's made because you like start above the water and you learn about. Uh, you know, Scuttle's narrating it, and then you go under the sea, and it like gets like physically colder, and you can like see the ocean, like the surface above you if you look, and they like design that, which is really cool. And then Ariel's hair is like the coolest thing in the world on the ride because uh, under the sea, it's like all plastic, and they built all these like little movers, kind of like how like a back chair back massager, it almost <laughs> works like that, and it like makes it look like it's flowing and stuff like that. And the under the sea scene is unbelievable. It's uh, it's like there's like 50 animatronics in there, and then the Ursula animatronic is like it's big, really impressive. It's very crazy. It's got it's uh it's seven and a half feet tall, twelve and a half twelve feet wide, which is just like enormous for an animatronic mm-hmm. and uh in the it's got this good rubbery skin that looks so real that like moves and her facial expressions mm-hmm. was like one of the first animatronics to really concentrate on the facial expressions yeah and um uh, but it, her head did fall off one day <laughs> in, front of, in front of everybody you know which is uh which is very funny for that also one of the first animatronic boners uh the priest right at the end <laughs> yeah right at uh, the priest yeah you actually see it lift yeah yeah and the priest yeah. says and it's just like the et right the priest says your name uh uh, while it's happening. <laughs> this is for you, Eddie. <laughs> and, yeah. And it tells the whole story. It's got all, yeah, the, it's all the songs. It kind of it packs it all in. It's pretty crazy. Yeah, and it's like, but it's like a seven-minute dark ride. Yeah. And usually they're like three minutes. Right. And so, and also always a short line. Yeah. Uh great way to get out of the heat, you know, in totally. the middle of summer. It's a it's always a fun ride. And it's right next to the Pixar Pier. It's the best thing to do while you're wasting time. The um it's in a it's one of the two dark ride animatronics in California Adventure. Yeah. Uh, and they used to have uh, the other one being the Monsters, Inc. And it's so funny. The older I get, the more I just want dark rides. Yeah. I love it. You know, I instead want, of like so crazy roller coaster. Yeah, there's just the art. It's just, it's chill. It's like a, just a nice little romp. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? And here's a, here's a nice little, because uh, they used to be a meet and greet for Ariel over in Disneyland called Ariel's Grotto where she, you know, the lady would come out and she'd be like, she'd meet everybody. Uh-huh. And there was a giant King Triton statue in there. But then they eventually got rid of it and put in the Finding Nemo submarines. But when they did that, they took the the King Triton statue and they went and threw it on top of the uh on top of the Little Mermaid ride in uh DCA not to waste what they had. Gotcha. Yeah. All right, I got some quotes to wrap it up. Jake in or Ed, anything else before I get into this? Uh Sorry, I was quiet there. I was just looking at footage of the Little Mermaid ride, and it's cool. Yeah, those are some giant flesh-covered robots. It's <laughs> cool. They, they they nailed it really well. I feel like uh, Ariel really looks animated uh, as much as she's mm-hmm. like a, a robot made out of like materials. Yeah, and they have one over in Magic Kingdom and also in uh, DCA. Hell yeah. All right, uh, John Musker said, Disney hadn't done a fairy tale for 30 years, so there was a feeling uh, of there's a legacy we have to sort of live up to. So we weren't sure if we could live up to that legacy or not. 
Ron Clement said in the same interview, we wanted to do something that would be compared favorably to those. So we started off with a huge, huge amount of enthusiasm. Like most films, there were problems midway through, and some of that enthusiasm got a little bit buried beneath the challenges and the struggles and the headaches and sort of problems. So there was maybe some loss of focus of the original enthusiasm. You're just trying to get it done. And there was a lot of pressure just to get the movie done in time. There were huge budgetary things that we were working under. So I think that kind of hung for a while until the first actual preview of the movie when we actually took it out into a theater in Burbank. Very unfinished, but it played amazingly well. It's like the numbers or whatever you get on something like this were the highest that we'd ever gotten. So that kind of brought that enthusiasm back. I think there was this sense that this could really be something special. And even from Jeffrey Katzenberg's point of view, there was that sense because the adults reacted so positively to the film. Kids reacted positively, certainly, but that's maybe more common. But adults seemed to react unusually positively, and that created a sense that this could kind of break out of just the family audience that is sort of typical for Disney films. And the quote I was uh, referring to before, Ron Musker said, After the film was done and we had a junket down in Florida when, when the film was being done, there was a parade of Disney stuff at that park. And he, uh, uh, Howard, uh, heard one of his songs there at the parade. He burst into tears because he felt, this thing is going to outlast me. And... I think even at that time, he may have known that he was sick and everything, but he had felt that what he had done was going to move into this culture where it was going to last. And it has. Boom. Woo. And I didn't fully cry. So there you go. Just got a little misty. Uh, that's our episode on The Little Mermaid. Uh, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, we've got uh, uh, some plugs to do here at the end. So let's, uh, Ed, start us off before we get into our bullshit. Um, he also, listen to the brighter side. It's the it's part of the LPN network. It's a great uh, cynics look at optimism podcast that I do with Amber Nelson. I feel like honestly, our show's been better than ever lately. Hell so yeah! Please come check that out. Um, I've got a I got a show that I I, I do called the Eddie Tunes Two Hour Radio Hour. You can find that on my Patreon. That's patreon.com slash Eddie Tunes E D D I E T U N E S. And uh, that's I also have some personalized playlists on there uh, that are just for my patrons. Uh, so please go check that out. It's very music heavy Patreon. Uh, but the Eddie Tunes Two Hour Radio Hour. Um, I've had a lot of great guests. Holden's guested once as part of the one of the Almonds Brothers brothers. Uh, I did a full Disney episode that ended up being three hours long and there's a nice and there's a nice chunk of Howard Ashman right at the end uh, Hell yeah! so check that out and and if you got some more free time uh, please watch my movie How America Killed My Mother it's a tragic story about uh, my mother and uh, being a victim of the uh, the healthcare system and uh, casinos and my father and all that uh, so please check that out you can watch that at howamericakillmymother.com Hell yeah. Uh, Patreon.com forward slash whizbrew. Uh, if you want $5 a month, if you want to support us further, weekly bonus episodes. You also, at $15 a month, uh, a month, you can join us for our Sunday study sessions. Every Sunday, of course, we recently watched The Little Mermaid and had a great time together for that. Um, Twitch.tv forward slash Holdenators Ho. Twitch.tv forward slash Holdenators Ho. Monday through Friday streams. It's every dirty man's dream. Jake! Uh, follow me on Twitter at Best Jake Young while you still can. Instagram at Best Jake Young. And of course, I also do my own little streamy thing. It's called The Cartoon Dumpster. Every Thursday, 7 p.m. Eastern, we watch weird old bad cartoons from the 80s, 90s, and today. Uh, we recently watched a weird German fairy tale series called Simsala Grimm, and they're 
insane Ooh. hybrid version of both. It was like a combination of the fucked up Hans Christian Andersen story and the Disney version. Like they didn't know which one they were <laughs> trying to knock off at the same time. It was fascinating. Uh, you can watch all the VODs on YouTube and Twitch. That's uh, twitch.tv slash Puppet Jared and youtube.com slash Puppet Jared. Uh, check it out. If you like this podcast, I think you'll enjoy what I do over there. Jake, yeah. you ever watch those um, old HBO Shakespeare, like the scary ones, those no, cartoons? Oh, but shit. I want to. Dude, wait, wait, can... is that the da, 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 na, 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 in a world of fairy tales? That one? No, it's like fucking scary shit. Oh, you know, it's it definitely oh, terrifying. Fun. I think you should watch. It's that'd all Shakespeare, good... and it's like they like they did a Macbeth. It's like brutal. That'd be a good series so... for uh, the month of October. Like shit for kids that was horrifying. Like that I mean, Alice in Wonderland like... made for TV. Thing <laughs> I love that, that show. Terrifying. I watched that. I watched that good film that uh, you, uh, oh, wow. at uh, Hollywood uh, Studios. MJ. Now, uh, and also, can I do one more plug? Please. Um, there, keep your eyes peeled for a Twitch show on the LPN. Yes, network, we're going to uh, start doing some more. I'm going to be. I'm going to start doing some more stuff on the LPN Twitch as well, coming real soon. Uh, yeah. And Ed and I's couple of buds. I think we're going to move it over there, which I'm very excited about. All right. Uh, hey, and always remember: never stop bruising and keep on whizzing. Woo, man, I just peace. <laughs> This show is made possible by listeners like you. Thanks to our ad sponsors, you can support our shows by supporting them. For more shows like the one you just listened to, go to lastpodcastnetwork.com. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.